So 1 Peter, 1 verses 1 to 7. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Juliet. So eight years ago, um, almost to the day probably, um, I began teaching through First Peter with a small group who helped to establish this church. In fact, the name of our church comes from 1 Peter 1 because we study that together. Now, since then, in the, in the intervening eight years, we have lived through monumental societal change. So, cast your mind back eight years ago and see if you can remember these events. The independence referendum. Me too. Brexit. Donald Trump. COVID. Black Lives Matter. The war in Ukraine. And now we have a cost of living crisis. In the last eight years, we've had four prime ministers. And then on Friday morning, most of us woke up for the first time in our lives without Queen Elizabeth II reigning over us. In fact, 94% of the global population had never lived a day that she hadn't been queen in the United Kingdom. This world is a very different world from what it was eight years ago. You don't need to be a prophet to realize that not only has there been significant societal change, there's also been significant spiritual change. So the 2022 census is very likely to be the first one in history in which the majority of Scots don't identify themselves as Christian. In 2016, there was a, um, a, a church census in Scotland and the census showed, found that only 7% of Scots go to church regularly. It estimated that that figure would drop to 5% by 2025. And that was before lockdown. Our family and friends, our neighbors and colleagues, are more likely to be part of a book club than they are the church. 
And so as Andy Hunter, who's the Scottish director of the FIEC, or the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, you can see why they abbreviate it, points out, Bible-believing Christians are a tiny minority in Scotland today. And our culture increasingly reflects that reality, doesn't it? Every day, weddings and funerals are happening without any church or spiritual input. Every day, kids are going to schools where hymns aren't sung in assemblies and the Lord's prayer isn't recited. Brownies and guides used to swear to do their duty to God. Now they swear to be true to themselves. At the start of this week, before it was overshadowed by the news of the Queen's death, the headlines in our media was that our new Catholic health minister votes according to her Catholic beliefs. That made news. In the past eight years, the gap between Christian Christianity or Christian faith and culture has grown. And apart from revival, that trajectory isn't going to change anytime soon, is it? Increasingly, Bible-believing Christians are going to feel like exiles, people who live in a place that they don't belong. We're going to live in a world in which simply to be a Christian means that you stand out, that you are odd, that you are weird, that you're on the margins. And that reality makes 1 Peter increasingly relevant for us. You see that in verse 1, where the apostle wrote his letter to elect exiles, which is where we've got the name for this series. People who were chosen by God to live in a place where they don't belong. Now, the people Peter was writing to were probably Jewish Christians. They'd been branded troublemakers and been kicked out of Jerusalem by the emperor, by the emperor Claudius. They dispersed or scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, an area that's called it was called Asia Minor, but we'll just, Asia Minor, but we'll just call it Turkey for simplicity. And so these Jewish Christians were refugees. Their entire lives had been turned upside down and shaken as if they lived in a snow globe. And so Peter writes to them. He writes this letter to be like a lonely planet guide for elect exiles. See, Peter's in Rome. And from Rome, he is equipping these disorientated Christians to live on the margins of society. But he's also preparing them for more suffering to come under this new emperor, Nero, who's even more aggressive towards Christians than Claudius was. And what we're going to see in this letter is that Peter does this in two ways. First part of this letter, he reminds them of who they are as God's elect. What it means to be a chosen person. And then the second half of the letter, he teaches them what it means to live 
in exile, how to live in a place where you don't belong. And so today, we're going to begin the first of 11 weeks looking at this uh, series, learning what it means to live as an elect exile. And what we're going to see right off the bat, the very first aspect, the first lesson that Peter has for us, is he wants us to know that as God's chosen people, we have an inheritance. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, the events of the last few days paint a picture of the trajectory of our country. A woman of faith who has led our country under you for 70 years has gone and we don't know what's coming next. Father, as we think back on the last eight years, we see so much change in our society, both culturally and, phys- and politically and spiritually. And Father, our hearts are heavy as we see movement away from you. And so Lord, I thank you that your words deals with that reality, that you speak into the reality of our life and our context. And so, Father, I pray that as we begin to look at 1 Peter and as we learn what it means to live as an elect exile, that you would equip us and that you prepare us for life on the margins. Father, I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would thrill us with the inheritance that we have. I ask that you would help us to to know with our minds and to see with our eyes the glory that is ours in Christ. And Lord, I pray that your word would implant in our hearts and bear fruit for the glory of your name in this world. Lord, speak to us because your servants are listening. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As I described our culture, I wonder how how you felt. The spiritual dreekness of Scotland can make us feel pessimistic and heavy, can't it? And there are genuine reasons for us to grieve and feel sadness and sorrow. But the same was true of the people that Peter wrote to, in fact, to a greater degree. These were people who had lost their reputations, people who had lost their business and their income, people that had lost their homes, people who had lost everything that was familiar to them because of their faith. The dark clouds of suffering were overhead, and Peter's forecast from Rome was, the clouds are only going to get darker. And so there were many reasons for pessimism. It'd be understandable to be pessimistic. But Peter doesn't begin this letter with pessimism, does he? He begins it with praise. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to His great mercy, 
he has caused us to be born again. Peter shifts the exile's focus from the misery of their circumstances onto the mercy of God. He wants them and he wants us to see that the compassion of God is greater than the challenges of exile. And so he reminds them of the truth that God in his great mercy has caused them to be born again. He is writing to people who were spiritually dead, unresponsive to Jesus. But God took the initiative and raised them to life. The Spirit caused their dead hearts to beat. And so when they heard about Jesus' death and resurrection, perhaps through Peter himself, they responded with faith and trusted Christ as their Savior. Their sins were forgiven and their lives were changed forever. And Peter wants them to know at the outset of this letter that they had as much to do with their second birth as they did with their first birth. He's saying your faith is entirely because of God's mercy. Your new life is a gift that God gives to you and it is a gift that keeps on giving. Continue on in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Imagine it. These men and women, these refugees, find themselves in Turkey surveying the rubble of their previous lives. They're grieving over everything that they have lost. And in the midst of their hopelessness, Peter assures them, you haven't lost hope. You still have hope. See, the hope that they had isn't based on the circumstances that they're living in. It's based on the resurrection of Christ. And so, yes, life might feel like death. But their hope was alive because Jesus is alive. You see, the resurrection proves to us that death doesn't have the last word, life does. That darkness doesn't win, light does. And because their hope was anchored in the reality of Jesus rising on the third day, there were no circumstances that could snuff their hope out. In the exile, as they're disorientated and confused and trying to find out what life is about and how they fit in, Peter is saying, look, let Christ and his resurrection be your north star. Here's how the queen put it. She put it perfectly in her 2020 Easter message. Do you remember this? At the height of lockdown, this is what she told us as her people. The discovery of the risen Christ on the first Easter day gave his followers new hope. As dark as death can be, particularly for those who are suffering with grief, light and life are greater. May the living flame 
of the Easter hope be a steady guide as we face the future? Think she'd read 1 Peter that morning? We're born again to a living hope. But Peter doesn't stop at hope. He goes on to tell us what that hope is. See, not only were these people born again to a living hope, they were also born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. As children of God, they were entitled to a share of His estate. And since God owns everything, that means they get a share of everything. You see, there is a coming day when the risen Christ will return from heaven to make all things new. There is a day coming when He will wipe every tear from our eyes, where He will destroy death once and for all, and make a world in which there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. Suffering and evil will pass away, and all will be well in the end. At the end of the storm is a golden sky that all of God's children will share in forever. And so, yes, life might feel like loss, but Peter says, your inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled. It's unfading. You might be completely bewildered and disorientated, but your future is utterly secure. It's kept in heaven for you, and so nothing on earth can change it, and you are kept on earth for it. You are guarded by God's power. So I wanted to get to them, They've got to come through God. And so these men and women, these elect exiles, faced many significant trials. They had a list as long as your arm of reasons why they could be pessimistic. In fact, it would be entirely understandable for them to look at their life and think, according to his great malice, the emperor has caused us to lose everything. And Peter comes along at the start of this letter and he lifts their eyes from their circumstances onto God and he says, no, 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 no. According to his great mercy, God has caused you to gain everything. And if we, like them, have been made alive by the Spirit of God, if we have put our faith in Christ as our Savior, then the same is true of us. According to God's great mercy, you have been born again. 
And because you have been born again, that means that you have a hope that cannot die. Because you have an inheritance that cannot be lost. When Christ returns, you will share in his very good world forever. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. You have an inheritance, and there is nothing that can change it. No referendum result, no social movement, no political leader, no war, no global crisis. Your inheritance is so secure that you can lose your reputation, you can lose your business, you can lose your house, you can lose even your life but you cannot lose your inheritance. God is keeping it safely in heaven for you with Christ. And he is keeping you safely for it by his power. As an elect exile, you have an inheritance. Let that sink in. Because when that reality comes through your ears, into your mind, and works its way down to your heart, it will transform how you live in exile. Just look at how Peter begins verse 6. In this you rejoice. What's of this? In your inheritance. And so our exile, our time living in a place where we don't belong, is to be marked with joy in our inheritance. Now that is a very strange thing for us to say. It's a very weird thing for us to say. You see, in the West, we have become so accustomed to comfort and to ease that a little discomfort completely throws us off. Like we completely freak out. When things don't go exactly how we want them to go, we can lose the plot. I mean, if I'm standing in a queue too long, I feel restless. I was driving somewhere this morning, and I got stuck in a, traffic, a queue of traffic, and itchy feet, scratchy stomach, and I need to move somewhere. Because I'm so used to comfort and ease, I can just drive without any hazards. Anne informs me that when I get a slight sniffle, I spend an entire week complaining about it. 
And so Peter telling people who have suffered so much to rejoice just confuses us, doesn't it? Like we don't have a framework to process that. But he does. He says, exiles should be joyful in suffering because of our inheritance. Now, that does not mean that our suffering is insignificant or doesn't matter. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. And so the Bible tells us that we should be sorrowful over suffering. But the Bible says also that we are to be sorrowful yet rejoicing. You can have joy in sorrow. The Bible tells us that we should grieve over our loss. But we don't grieve like the world. We grieve with hope. The soundtrack to a life of an elect exile is singing in the rain. Because our inheritance gives perspective to our suffering that brings joy. Peter shows us two ways. Firstly, he shows us that our inheritance tells us that our suffering is brief. Don't know if you notice the four words in verse 6 where he says, In this you rejoice, though now, now listen to these four words, for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. A little while. Now, how you interpret a little while depends entirely on your perspective. See, if you are two, then experience tells me that 10 minutes of quiet seems like a lifetime. But if you're the parent of a two-year-old, 10 minutes of quiet passes like a blink of the eye, doesn't it? See, our understanding of time depends on our perspective. So for ease of illustration, you'll understand why in a moment, I want you to imagine that your life is 100 years old. Now we're going to remove our inheritance out of the picture, okay? So no inheritance, forget that. Life is 100 years, start to end, that's what we've got. And we're going to say that our, our life, worst case scenario, is 100 years of solid suffering. Okay, so you've got a hundred-year life entirely of suffering. That's all it is. Now, a hundred years out of a hundred years is a hundred percent. Right? So your suffering will feel like a really long time. It will feel like forever. Which is maybe why our secular West society our tolerance to suffering in, in the West is so low. But think about what happens when you add in a Christian perspective. Think about what happens when you add in your inheritance to the picture. A hundred years of suffering is 10% of a thousand years. It's 1% of 10,000 years. 
It's 0.1% of 100,000 years. It's 0.01% of a million years. Anyone know how many percent it is of eternity? I don't know. But I think it'd be fair to sum it up as a little while. You see, our inheritance gives us perspective on our suffering. It tells us that even if we have a hundred years of suffering, it's a little while. That's not to minimize it, it's just to put it in perspective. Our inheritance tells us that suffering isn't forever. It declares to you that your sorrows aren't ultimate. Your grief is temporary. But your joy is ultimate. Your hope is permanent. Your inheritance provides you with the hopeful prognosis that your suffering is perishable, but your inheritance is imperishable. Our inheritance tells us that our suffering is brief. It's just a little while. Secondly, our inheritance tells us that our suffering is necessary. Look at verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, notice the next two words, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What's the implication? The implication is that God has deemed our trials necessary. Verse 7 explains why. See, there Peter explains that that our trials test the genuineness of our faith. It's easy to be a Christian in a world full of Christians where everything is Christian. When the sun's shining down on you, it's easy to be a Christian. But it's hard to be a Christian when the world around you isn't Christian. When it's not sunny in the skies, but it's cloudy and the rain is pouring down on you. Trusting God in suffering is where real faith is proven to be genuine. It's supposed to make the roots of our trust in God go deeper. You see, our faith is like gold. And gold doesn't come out of the ground pure. It's mixed with loads of other metals. And so, to purify it, gold needs to be refined. And for that to happen, it requires extreme heat. So, a refiner has to to heat gold up to a thousand degrees Celsius for it to melt. And when it melts, what happens is all the impurities and the other metals float to the surface and are removed. And so, what is left is pure gold, or at least purer gold than it was before. You see, with gold, the fire is necessary for the purification. And the same is true of our faith. Suffering is necessary 
to prove the genuineness of our faith. God is a refiner who uses the heat of suffering to, to rise to the surface all of our distrust and trust in other things so that we can remove them and trust more deeply in Him. God is a refiner who uses suffering to purify us. Which means our pain prepares us for eternity. God is readying us for an undefiled future. Now imagine what happens if you remove our inheritance from the picture. Does that make trials disappear? Does that mean that we aren't grieved anymore by suffering? No. It doesn't remove the pain. All it does is it removes the purpose. Suffering goes from being necessary for our purification to having to being completely and utterly unnecessary. Got no reason, no way of explaining it. Which is maybe why our Western culture is so awkward about suffering. But our inheritance tells us that our trials are never wasted. God uses them to ready us for our undefiled inheritance. Suffering produces a faith which results in praise and glory and honor when Christ returns. Back in 2016, I was at an Acts 29 pastor's conference and the speaker was an African-American called Tabiti Anabuela. And he told us this. Some of our, our men read a book that included this quote recently. He said this, and I think this is the most powerful line I've ever heard in a sermon. He said this. Your suffering Christian is your slave. Your suffering is working for you to produce an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The next time suffering comes into your room, say, welcome, my slave. Produce for me the glory that God has designed. Our inheritance tells us that our suffering is necessary. I recently read the story of a 37-year-old Jesuit priest called Tomislav Kolakovich. It wasn't a book about him, he was just part of a chapter. I'm not sophisticated enough to read that type of book. But Thomas studied for ministry in Russia. And at the end of the Second World War, he was teaching in a university in Bratislava. And from there, as the Nazis were defeated, he anticipated the rise of communism. And he looked around and he judged the church unprepared. 
And so in response, he gathered small groups of people, and he prepared them to live in exile, in an atheistic state. He did three things. He taught them how to study the Bible so that they would know what they believed and why they believed it. He gave them theological convictions. He taught them how to pray so they would have a living relationship with God wherever they were in total dependence on Him. And then He taught them to live in fellowship together so that they might support each other practically and spiritually. By 1944, there were groups all over the country. So four years later, when the communists took complete control, the institutional church capitulated. Under the pressure, it became like everyone else in the culture. But Kalakovich's disciples didn't. They lived distinctive lives in a place they didn't belong. Now, most of them ended up in jail because of their faith. But when they emerged from jail, an underground church quickly developed across the country. Here's what the author concluded. Slovak Christians were among the most persecuted in the Soviet bloc. But the Catholic church there thrived because one man saw what was coming and prepared his people. That's what Peter's doing in this letter, isn't it? He's in Rome, and he sees what is coming. And so he prepares his readers for life in exile. The trajectory of our culture is that we're heading deeper into exile. And so we have to prepare ourselves for that. And Peter helps us with that. And he starts to equip us by telling us, you have an inheritance. And so your suffering is brief. And your suffering is necessary. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your great mercy. Thank you that in all of the difficulties of life, the, the many challenges we face, the, the, the numerous reasons we have, to be pessimistic, that you've given us bigger reasons to praise. Lord, you have caused us to be born again to a hope that cannot die through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You've caused us to be born again to an inheritance that we cannot lose. Father, I thank you for that. Lord, may each of us know our inheritance in Christ. Our future is secure. And so, Lord, would you help us to rejoice in the exile? 
Lord, as we are grieved by various trials, would you help us to rejoice because we see them in perspective in light of eternity. Lord, you are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. You are the perfect refiner. And so, Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, help us to know who we are as your chosen and beloved children. Thank you for our inheritance. In Jesus' name, amen.